I started as the rubbish boys. It was just myself, but I saw a vision for something bigger and I bought a beat up old pickup truck. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Brian Scudamore. How you doing, man? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. Good to connect. Of course. Great. And so got to take it all the way back to birth. Like, did you come out of the womb and just start hoarding junk or like, you know, where did it all start? Where are you from? Yeah, I was cleaning up in that hospital yeah, room. Exactly. Right yeah. the beginning. This just won't do. We got to get rid of this bed. <laughs> yeah. I was born, I was born in San Francisco. I live in Canada now. I'm a Canadian. My mother remarried when I was seven. But I really grew up in an entrepreneurial family. My Uh grandparents ran an army surplus store in San Francisco and a dodgy end of town. And I'd go work there every spring break, summer vacation, Christmas holidays. And I'd work in their little store and I learned about business and about customer experience and taking inventory. And I just, I loved it. I found it to be so much fun that I think I got the bug at an early stage. And did you, like, was that always, because I had a similar upbringing, an entrepreneur, grandpa and dad. And so always just figured I'd be an entrepreneur, but I'm curious if you had the same thing. Or did you have times where you thought you were going to go work for someone and you looked at the corporate environment too? I thought I would work for a big company and grow my way up the ladder a little bit. I used to, you know, one of my favorite movies as a guy growing up was Wall Street. Uh-huh. I just love the hustle and the, the the money making and the growth. And But I changed directions. I just, I really got back to that loving watching my grandparents build a business. I admired entrepreneurs. I'd always love the Richard Branson's of the world and the the Ray Crocs. And I just thought, you know, building business is fun. Yeah. And if I could, I was never a good student. I went from kindergarten to college and did 14 schools. And the only diploma to show is, is kindergarten. I literally failed out of high school, talked my way into college, dropped out of college I moved around a ton. My dad's a liver transplant surgeon, and we went to England, to Sweden, Canada, all over the place. And so I went from school to school, partially because of moving and partially because I wasn't a great kid and couldn't stay focused. And so to- Was that boredom? Was that just like you had, you knew that you did like the core academia just didn't make any sense to you and you had other things you wanted to do? Where'd it come from? I love learning. I just don't love being told what to learn. You know, here you go. You've got to take this math class, the science class. I want to learn on my own terms. And so how I learn is I buy books, skim through them, but I go talk to people, people like you. And we've met at MMT and Genius Network and just talking to other entrepreneurs. And I love that stuff. So I'm constantly picking up the phone and getting on Zoom and connecting with people and learning from them and learning by doing business with others. Yep. versus studying in school. Yeah, always been the same thing. I, I'm frankly not an avid reader. I, I have a lot of friends' books and I hate to say it, but I've, it's similar to you, I've skimmed them, but I've never like, I, it's been a long time since that down, frankly, because school turned me off of it. I really, re- I remember the turning point with Island of the Blue Dolphin. They forced me to read that. I hated it and I was done. And before that, I was voracious in reading. So yeah. I think I read every Goosebumps book when I was, you know, in fifth grade. <laughs> I was never a voracious book reader. I'm a voracious book buyer. I still buy them. I see Same. something, I'm like, yeah. I go to Amazon and, you know, and I want the hardcover. Yeah, you know our mutual friend that just came out. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Robert Glazer, great book. Yeah. yeah, and we're featured in it. So I figured I probably should buy a few copies. So I bought them for our team. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, so you, you worked with your grandparents. When was like the first point you did it on your own? You tried your first entrepreneurial venture. You, you know, took that risk, so to speak. Yeah, car wash grade, what grade would I have been? Five, something like that. And in a summer, yep. some of my friends were starting to get jobs and paper routes and all that sort of stuff. And I went out on my own and I had a neighbor across the street who started a car wash uh-huh. and he was charging two bucks. And I'm like, oh, that's a cool idea. So I went and painted my own sign, $1.75 and got on the other corner and got some girls who were friends of mine in the neighborhood. They were holding signs and we were just flagging people down. And a buddy and I started washing people's cars. I remember we had a lineup of nine cars at one point and we kept going back and forth with the guy across the street and we had a little price war and I got down to, I think, 75 cents a car and I made money. I had fun and it it just felt like a hustle. And I think that was one of the first times where I'm like, okay, I did this on my own. I was 11. That's what I was. I was 11 years old. And I remember making money, feeling good about it, having fun and having a bit of freedom and feeling like a bit of a leader, employing some people. And it was a blast. And yeah, we would do yeah. it every summer. And most people don't, I mean, at 11, most people don't have that experience. They don't have a job. I have a 10-year-old sister, funny enough, and I keep telling her, like, hey, it might be time to start figuring this out. What do you mean? I'm 10. Like, right. I started buying and selling Beanie Me Babies at eight years old and selling lemonade at six. Like, it's a fun thing to open up to you. And so from there, like, were you always, had, did you always have that hustle during middle school, high school, where you're always having some way of making money? Did you get a job or was it always making it on your own? Yeah, I got sent away to a boarding school, an all-boys school on an island for a year, and it was remote, and I was a bad kid, and and and, and more the bad kid, and just a, the class clown, couldn't focus, all that sort of stuff. So I fail out of eighth grade, I get sent away for ninth grade to Seanigan Lake Boarding School, and I was bored, and I'm just like, I'm with all guys, we're stuck in this dorm in the middle of nowhere, and I thought, what can I do? And of course, I went back towards the business idea. Mm-hmm. And I said it was a 15-minute walk to the corner store uh-huh. to get chocolate bars and sodas. And I said, I wonder if I could just go buy some of the stuff from that store and bring it back and sell it at a premium so people didn't have to leave the store late at night. It might be closed. I was running a school store out of my dorm room yeah. and was making money. Perfect. And it was it was awesome because... There were 250 kids there at the school and you were given an allowance based on your age. You weren't allowed to bring outside money because there were some rich families and they just mm-hmm. didn't want it. They wanted it to be fair. People are ordering pizza on the weekends and renting a video. They wanted it to be sort of equitable. And so I was the only person there that had a different level of money because I was the only person that found a business opportunity to start at, at boarding school. Yeah. And so again, it, it was fun. But then I dealt with my first government shutdown, yeah. I guess. <laughs> the, the school said, hey, listen, you're taking money away from our school store where we sell stuff at lunch. Yeah. And uh, they shut me down. So my, my brother had an identical experience in boarding school and high school tried to start the school store. And when he told, called me, I'm, old, I'm nine years older than him. He called me telling me he's getting shut down. I'm like, that's absolute bullshit. That is monopolizing, like too bad. You know, they're not allowing competition. Like I, I tried to give them some, you know, pushback to give them. But yeah, that was the end of that. But it did well for him for a little while. <laughs> yeah. And you, you learn from these things. You know, I, I wrote a book called WTF, which mm-hmm. stands for willing to fail. Yep. And I talk about failure and how those lessons teach you something. Oh, yeah. I mean, it te- that taught me you can't always get what you want. You can push and try, you can push the government, you can push the school and try and say, no, 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 but here's all the reasons. And I tried to sell them and they didn't buy it. And ultimately they had control and I had no power and I lost. 
I also think that specific question, what it teaches you is it's a, it's not that big a deal to get shut down. Like, okay, as much as you wanted to keep going, like you didn't get hurt. Like people, I think people are afraid of failure, not just because of like, you know, the, what if I fail or learn to fail that side of things, but also like the outcome, like what's going to happen if I fail, how does this oh, collapse? Like they hear about these giant collapses of companies and it's like, well, no, it doesn't really unwind that way. Generally, if you're big, it's a little bit more painful, but when you're getting started, it's when you fail, it's like you turn off the lights one day and let's move on. Yeah. It didn't sour me off of entrepreneurship, right. but probably yeah. made me stronger and more resilient yeah. and taught me how to deal with failure. Yeah. And so where'd you go from there? What was next? So I sold hockey cards. I lived in Montreal for a year during university. Yeah. And I noticed that the French version in Quebec of, of these hockey cards, these upper decks yeah. were selling for a premium all over the place because they were rare. They were only sold yeah. in one province. So I put a classified ad in a couple of the cities where they recently won the Stanley Cup, I think Pittsburgh and Minnesota. Yeah. And I was selling caseloads of hockey cards to yeah. people in the US. And I'd go to the post office, I'd skip classes and university. Yeah walk with these big caseloads and sell them. I did $60,000 worth of hockey cards in a short period of time. Yeah, And it was just, to me, it was like a game. And yep. what I remember about that, my girlfriend that I was living with at the time, I took all my school money that I'd saved up. I took all hers. We were living off of ramen noodles and all that while I was waiting for my first checks on, I, I bought all these hockey cards in advance thinking yep. I'm going to be able to sell them and had some inventory. Yeah. And uh, eating ramen, waiting for some checks to come in. And we thought for a while there, this is just not going to work. And I'm yeah. screwed, but it did work and yep. I had a ton of fun. That's awesome. And so that's in college. You said you went to college, but dropped out. Yeah. So I actually started my business, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, the, the first baby in my group of brands. I started as the rubbish boys. It was just myself, but I saw a vision for something bigger and I bought a beat up old pickup truck. I saw a McDonald's drive through while I was in line, someone with a beat up old truck and it said Mark's hauling. It was filled with junk. I needed a way to pay for college, yeah. especially being a high school dropout. My parents were not going to fund me, you know, being one class yeah. short. And so I uh, saw that truck, went and bought one, started hauling junk. Yeah. And as I started to build out that business, it was to fund my way during school, but in school, I was learning more about business studying than I was, sorry, learning more about business, running a business versus studying in school. And I, I dropped out, but it was that second summer I was in Montreal. I'd sold the hockey cards during the year, came back to Vancouver. And I'm like, I got to refire up my, my junk business again. Yeah. And I did it as a summer business until I had learned enough and had the confidence to drop out of college. I had a year left. I sat down with my father, who's a liver transplant surgeon, who's right. done a ton of school. And I said, hey, dad, I got some good news. I'm, I'm quitting school to run my business full time. And he tried to talk me out of it. And I yeah, said, of course. I'm learning more running a business. Yeah. I will always learn this way. And I yeah. made a tough decision. And he didn't really buy in until a decade later. I was going to say, even if I'm sure, and I, I want to hear the the next part of the story, but even if it was decently successful early on, I feel like it takes a very long time to get that parent that wants you to be safe. Like their parents aren't concerned with you being hyper successful. They want you to be safe. And mm -hmm. so that safety net of your education, your degree, et cetera, especially those that have bought into it, I think it's so big. I think it takes a while to get, let that go. Well, that's exactly what my dad said is he said, Hey, Bri, school, you've got one year left, just finish it, have it in the bag. Right? Yeah. 
And I said, but University of British Columbia, my last school that I attended, I said, it'll be there years from now if I want to go back. And it's still there today. And I said, my business opportunity might not be. So I'm going to strike while the iron's hot. And I did it. My dad talked to another friend who was an entrepreneur and told him the whole story. And this entrepreneur buddy said to my dad, he goes, your son knows what he's doing. And gave a little bit of confidence to my dad in the absence of him believing in what I was doing. And then a decade later, we were sitting at a table together at a Entrepreneur of the Year event where I was nominated as a finalist. Was that EY? It was. Nice. And I won for my category that year. And yeah. I remember I come back to the table with my trophy and my dad's like, yeah, you've done a good job. Well, <laughs> I think you made a good decision quitting school. And just for clarity, because I know, but for the listeners, how many employees do you have right now across the franchises? Yeah. Oh, but I mean, if we include our franchise partners, employees, probably 5,000. Yeah. So I think you've, you've created something decent here. <laughs> yeah. I felt like we've built something. It's something special. That's got a great culture and yeah. we've got the three brands. 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Mm-hmm. We've got Wow One Day Painting, a company where we paint people's homes in a day. Uh-huh. We franchise that. And then Shack Shine, windows, gutters, power washing, and Christmas lights. And yep. All three brands I love. I've got three young kids. I've got three brands. You don't pick yeah. favorites and it all works. Roll the three. All right. And so you start 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Was it just booming from day one? You hired a bunch of employees, found a partner, off to the races? How'd it go? I made $1,700 in my first year in terms of profit. So not a lot of money, yeah. just yeah. enough to pay for college. The One of the booming points for us where things started to take off, where I got a different level of understanding of potential was my girlfriend said, why don't you go tell your story to the press? Mm-hmm. And uh, she said, you've got a cool story. You're in the junk business. You yeah. dropped out of high school, go tell the story. And I did. And we wound up on the front page of our local newspaper the next day. Wow. Just big, massive. I mean, it wasn't an ad. It was a story and it had our phone number, 1-800-GOT-JUNK or 738-JUNK at the time. And we got 100 phone calls in a day and got all this business and was just slammed. Wow. We realize we are storytellers. We go to a party, we tell stories, and that's what kind of drives us. And so for me to get out and tell the story to the press as a distribution channel for inspiration of our story and telling the world what you know we're doing that's unique and surprising it turned out to get us cnn wall street journal new york times cnbc oprah everything and and it became a big strategy of ours before social media was a thing we were telling stories to the press and now of course storytelling is so much a social medium and both are important but it's been a massive growth lever for us and our brands Got it. And so I guess from there, like, were you, was it still just you when you got that press story or where were you at in terms of people? Yeah. So I brought a partner in at one point. So it was a guy from Montreal who I went to school with and he came out and joined me in the business. And ultimately, you know, that didn't work out so well because he had different intentions with the business. He wanted to ski more and hang out with his girlfriend. I wanted to focus more on growing the business and I bought him out, mm-hmm. but it was the two of us on that newspaper and with the truck. And it was amazing. We had, you know, bus drivers who always have a newspaper. They were showing the newspaper out of the window of their bus as they're driving alongside of the truck showing oh, us. Oh, that's cool. This is you guys. And this was in Vancouver? Was it? This was in Vancouver. Yep. The yeah. first big media hit, and then it turned into national press and international press. Wow. 
Yeah. So it, it did pick up right away. Like they started, or wait, did that happen? The, the momentum started to pick up, but it was yeah. us or myself. I was the guy pitching the press. I would yeah. pick up the phone and call the press and say, I got an awesome story idea for you. And they're like, yeah, what is it? Yeah. And I, I would frame it in a way that they bit and covered the story. Yeah. There's so much to wear in there. I mean, people don't realize that to get press, make it easy on them. Like just give them the story they want. They're all looking for things to write about. You just have to make it easy on why it makes sense. And don't have some preconceived notion that you're that special, like spin the story. How do you make it special? It's not, you know, just mm. being an entrepreneur, building a company is not special. Have yeah. some angle, that kind of thing. So that's great. Yeah. And well, so I used to ask, I used to ask the press when they said, no, I don't think there's a story. I'd say, well, what's missing? What would make it a story as a journalist who clearly gets crafting stories? What's missing? Yeah. And you wouldn't convince them, but they would often give you the little nugget that you needed for the next conversation with the next journalist. Yeah, no, that's perfect. And that's a, another great nugget. When you hear no, like learn from it, whether it's in sales or pitching stores or whatever it is, like I always get our sales team when we're, we lose a client. Why? Find out why. Learn something. Learn something about your pitch. Learn something about our value proposition. Learn something to see what we can do better. And I think that's so important. So so you start building the company. Did and. Were you always bootstrapped? Did you raise money? How did that go? Never raised money, always bootstrapped. Uh -huh. Took me eight years to get the business to a million in revenue, which is okay. a long time. But yep. I perfected, in my mind, the systems, the model for what we would build. And then I started to look at franchising. In that eight years, did you ever have points that were close to failure? Or did you? Was it pretty steady, Eddie, for those... I, I had points, lots yeah. of points. Five years into the business, half a million in revenue. I fired my entire company, all 11 people. One bad apple spoils the whole bunch. Yeah. And I didn't enjoy the people I was working with. Uh -huh. Culture was non-existent, yeah. toxic. I was a part of that. And I got rid of everybody. And I said, I'm sorry, I made the mistake of not bringing on the right people or treating you with the love and respect and support you needed. And I made a change. Wow. And Started that next day going from five trucks down to just the one I could drive and yeah. rebuilt up the entire business, paying attention to the culture creation, paying attention to finding the right people and treating them right. Uh -huh. I, at the time when I had those 11 people, I was hiding in a private office and going forward when I rehired, I got rid of an office. We we're still open office today when we're not working from home. Uh -huh. And I love being connected to people. And there's no hierarchy in terms of corner offices. It's just, we're all out in the open. Yep. We all get along. We have fun. So I wanted to surround myself with people I could have fun with. Uh -huh. And the franchise model gave us this, we're building something bigger and better together. When someone comes into Shack Shine and they look at this business, they're like, I get to do what those guys early days did with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and build a yep. successful life and dream and business. I love nothing more than watching people grow and building stuff. No, that's super rewarding. And so when you started the franchise side, you said we're about eight years in, you went, it's time to start expanding this? Yeah. So I started looking at the franchise model and you talk yeah. about the power of no and, you know, someone telling you, you can't do this or it can't be done. <laughs> I went out to a bunch of mentors, about a dozen people who some had franchise experience with McDonald's and other great brands. And I said, this is what I'm looking at doing. What do you think? And 100% of the people I sought advice from said, I, I don't think it's a good idea. I don't think it can be done. Yeah. Similar to the journalists, I would say, what's missing? Yeah. What would make it franchisable? And I'd take all these notes and then I went away and I took their smart advice and I retooled. Yeah. And part of it was most people said, what's going to have someone go buy 
a junk truck and start hauling junk under your systems. Like it's anybody can just go buy a truck on their own and, and put an ad in the paper. And so what I did is I created a brand, 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I created a look and a feel and a set of business systems. And I created a call center where I said, we will do all the booking and dispatch for you yep. while you get out and run your business, hire people, find the right people, treat them right, do the marketing. And that had people, when I went back to these franchise advisors, they're like, wow, I think you actually listened. I think you're onto something. I think this could actually work. Yep. And here we are today, almost half a billion dollar business hauling yep. junk that we were told no. Yeah. And so who was your first franchise? Who was that first person to go, I'm in, I'm going to take the risk. I'm buying a truck. Let's go. Fellow named Paul Guy, who's in Toronto. Uh -huh. Paul ran my operations in Vancouver. Uh -huh. And there was a point where we actually butt heads. I get along with like everybody. Uh -huh. And I remember we were in our office and we butted heads over a vision of where the company was going to go. And we disagreed. And I said to Paul, you know, I, I guess this isn't working out. And he goes, you're right. What do you want to do? And he goes, are you telling me I'm fired? And I said, well, sure. And he said, when do you want me to leave? I said, how about now? And three days later, I kept showing up to the office and he was still there. I'm sure he went home to sleep, but he was still working. I'm like, weren't you fired? And then we had this moment, he was spending time in Toronto with his girlfriend. And I just had this crazy idea. And I go, you ever thought of moving to Toronto? He's like, oh, I've considered it. And I said, you ever thought of starting the first franchise there? And somehow his eyes sparkled and glowed, mine did. And we we're just like, this is unbelievable. And we went from button heads to becoming amazing friends. And he became the first franchise owner. He wow. drove a truck, a 1-800-GOT-JUNK truck across the country with his life's belongings and moved in with his girlfriend. And today he's got a $60 million empire with junk removal businesses in Toronto, Nashville, New York. Not bad. Incredible. <laughs> That's awesome. And with that, what you're butting heads over, did it allow him the freedom to go do the things he thought were important in the business, but you still got to do the bumpers, so to speak? Was that kind of part of it? Yeah, I said, listen, like I will build out the systems to support you, but I want yep. you to give me some guidance as to how to build out the systems to support franchise owners. Yep. And we were very different in many ways. You know, he loves fancy cars. I'm not a big money guy. Yep. But I've been able to watch him grow and live his dreams and drive his Audi R8 and all the different yep. things he's bought and his boat. And, and so it's been fun. It's, it's what I love is whatever someone's dream is, if our business can help get them there, if we can help make magic together, if we can build something bigger and better together, it's just the most rewarding thing in the world. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And so how long did it take to like, from those learnings, start expanding those franchises? Well, we got lucky with finding the right person with Paul. What took me, as I told you, eight years to get to a million in revenue, Paul did it in his first full calendar year. Wow. So he, he kicked my butt. I mean, we yeah. had the systems now, but he did it so much faster than I did. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is unbelievable. And so we started selling the dream that Paul was living to others. Right. And people yeah. started coming on board. And I think it was four years in before we had our first five franchises. So it took a while. Yeah. But then with Oprah and some of the press we had, Fortune. So did you keep going for that press? Was that always still a focus of yours? It was. It was always a big focus, getting the press to tell our stories to big mass media, over mass mediums. And things just took off. You know, we had a few big ones like NPR. We were on a national radio hit that got us 1,500 leads overnight. Yeah. Fortune magazine got us over 500 in a couple of days. Nice. And so 
it was using that storytelling to connect with others who said, oh yeah, I've always wanted to start my own business. Whoa, junk removal, never thought of that. And it's the same thing that happens with like our painting business. People go, painting business, I don't, wouldn't ever want to paint. Well, we've got this model where people can create these empires following the systems, the proven recipe. And it isn't about painting. It's about building a business and building a brand. Yeah. So wow. One day. It sounds like the thesis is whether it's junk or painting or cleaning windows, everybody needs it. So, you know, you teach people the infrastructure. It's, you don't have to create demand. The demand exists. You just have to show them how to do business. Yeah. And it, it, it's funny because franchising is now becoming a little sexier than I think it used to be. It used uh-huh. to be that people would look at it and think, ah, oh, McDonald's, Subway, fast food. Yeah. But I interviewed for our big franchise annual kickoff last year where we, you know, get all our franchise owners together. I got to interview Shaquille O'Neal. Nice. And I found out I didn't know this. Right. What's that? Oh no, that's I don't think it's Shaquille now. He owns which franchise does he own? He owns Five Guys Burgers, Auntie Anne's, Krispy yeah. Kreme, a whole bunch. And I didn't realize he was a franchisee. Yeah. And so he bought into all these brands and he said to me in our interview, I play the game of sports very much similar to the game of business. I know how to build teams, great people, take an idea and cheerlead them on. He's like, franchising was perfect. And the guy's worth half a billion dollars in not just his sports success, but in taking franchises and putting great people in place. He goes, I want a proven recipe, a recipe that my people can follow and create greatness. And so it's interesting to watch that franchising has become a bit of a hotter commodity lately because people are going, "Eh, I don't need to invent stuff. I don't need to come up with the Instagram idea. I can just take someone else's recipe and execute with excellence. When you mentioned the money thing, like something I've learned is like, there's a pretty, I want to say low threshold because you're still significantly in the 1%, but you're, you you know, it's one in a hundred people get to a point that money's not a thing. Like you don't need to make more money. So like the idea of trying to make the next Instagram and make billions of dollars, like you're going to live the same as someone that makes a million or two a year. Mm-hmm. If you make billions, like and sure. if you really want that mega yacht or that, you know, 18 different houses or fly private all the time, other than those kind of check boxes, everything else is about the same. You're gonna eat the same meals. You're gonna go to the same places. Like, yeah. So. And I think, I think a lot of money can bring unhappiness. I you know, I, Fred, Fred DeLuca, who's since passed on, but he was the founder of Subway and he was a mentor of mine. I got lucky enough to meet him at a franchise conference and we kept in touch and we'd always get on the phone. He'd come to the office. And I remember he said, you know, I asked him how he was doing one time I saw him and he's like, oh, good. I just sold my yacht. Yeah. He had a 175 foot yacht and he goes, it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Number of people that were always hounding you, trying to get on it, trying to moor it, park it, like maintain it. He just like too much effort. He's like, you you want to enjoy life. Exactly. No, Barry Turner, who's been on the podcast, said it on the podcast. He started, you know, Lenny and Larry's, the like protein muffins and cookies. Have you seen that? Might not be big up there. They're big out here. He said this. So I'm not sharing anything he didn't. He was doing about 30 million in EBITDA when he sold the business and sold yeah. probably $400 million. And on this, I was like, so how was that day? He's like, worst fucking day of my life. <laughs> Explain. He's like, well, I liked running a cookie company. I already had the things I wanted. Like I drove the car, I had the house, whatever. And now I'm a real estate guy. I kind of liked being a cookie guy. Like it was yeah. a muffin. So you, you start to learn like being able to find the thing you're passionate about. Maybe it's not inventing something brand new. Maybe it is working within an infrastructure that they've done all the painful part. Because really building a business, like I've talked about it with my own, where it's like, I don't know that I'd want to go back to year one or two. Because there's nostalgia and things you remember. They're like, that was fun. Yeah. But like, the truth is, when you're starting your first eight years, 
it's a grind. And if you can skip that and get right into just opening, the brand's done, the process is in place, and you just have to run it, there's some peace in that too. Yeah, absolutely. It it is a grind. And yes, there's nostalgia. I mean, I remember the good old days, but it was hard. Yeah. Like, would you want to do it again? Like starting I would not. I would not. So so I absolutely would not want to sell and take those proceeds to go start something again. I'd rather build momentum and and grow where we're planted. We've got three great brands. One day we'll have four. And I feel the same way. Okay, so you progress, you build out. And so how many franchises are you at now? We're probably 250. What are some key points? Like, There's a story that I did hear from your old COO about a pretty crazy point when you had bootstrapped to 100 million in revenue and got into some trouble. So would love, what are some other like critical points that you found throughout that growth? Yeah. So Cameron Harold, who you mentioned, I mean, you know, he and I are great friends. We talk all the time. He got us, helped get us from 2 million to 106 million. But yeah, at 100 million, there were cracks in the foundation. We were growing too quickly. We were too fire ready aim types at the helm. And we were just making decisions too quickly for the size of the business we were at. So after Cameron, I went and overhired and found someone who was an ex-Starbucks president, brought them in into my little business, felt like I hit the jackpot. This person was from British Columbia and wanted to move back from Seattle. So it was when a great you little business. What size were you at that point? I was probably a hundred million, hundred low hundreds. A little business. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I thought, I mean, Starbucks, like this yeah, person, 30,000 yeah. employees reporting. And so coming into my business, I'm like, I hit the jackpot. This is going to be amazing. I don't think this person believed in me at the time as an entrepreneur yeah. and thought of me as almost in the way. Uh-huh. And so we never butted heads. We just saw the world differently and diverted in our visions. And so 14 months in, I had to make a tough decision to get this person out. What was interesting at the time is I was the only person in my business that thought that was a good idea. Oh, wow. It was one of the biggest failures I've ever had. When they say it's lonely at the top, I couldn't have been more lonely, down and depressed over the decision I made that I felt like it was the right decision. But all my franchise owners are going, what did you do? Like, are you nuts? Yeah, And they didn't understand. They would over time come around to understand. Mm-hmm. And I just knew long term, this was the best decision for the company. Yeah, Even if others could not see it and didn't see it at the time, which they didn't, it wasn't the right leader to take us to the next level. But it led me to finding Eric Church, mm-hmm. who is our president and COO today, who's unbelievable. We're great friends. We're very different, but we are almost joined at the hip and how we run the company together. It's this two in the box model of leadership. And he's been with the company almost 10 years and it's unbelievable how it works. Like we just were yin to each other's yang and it's this amazing model. So the failure with the Starbucks, ex-Starbucks person led me to understand myself better and what I was looking for to then find Eric. And with the Starbucks guy, how quickly did you know it wasn't going to be good? Like, when did you feel like this was a bad move? I got to figure something out. How quickly? So I remember five months in, Yeah, I left to go on vacation to Italy. It was one of the first vacations I'd really taken extended time. And I went away for four or five weeks and I came back and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm so lucky I can do this now. So I thought things were great up to that point. Yeah, But it's when I came back and I saw how my own team or my former team didn't seem to respect me. I'd lost control. It was all this other person's team and it just changed so quickly. Yeah. And I'm like, I was watching it. So I think from month five to about month eight or nine, yep. I started to notice that, oh, this is not going the right direction. Got it. Okay. So it wasn't immediate because a lot of people, they'll notice something like that. Would it drag for 
years sometimes with that kind of a position. So I I watched closely and I think the ultimate thing for me was knowing that I had a vision of where it was going and I knew this wasn't going to get us there and then making some tough decisions. And I didn't want my job back. I didn't want to be the COO at all. And I knew when my franchise partner said to me, when I got the Starbucks X Starbucks out, they said, you can't do this job. And I'm like, no, I know, (laughs) but we didn't have the right person and we're going to find the right person. And we did Awesome. And so in terms of that period of like two to hundred million with Cameron, when you were building that early stage, how did you guys do that? Like, what was the, like, that is a big, big growth period, even though you called it a small business and I get it was compared to Starbucks. Yeah. How long did that take first off? Cause that sounds like he joined right after that first year with your first franchiser, right? Yeah, roughly, you know, yeah. we were at 2 million, went to 106. I think it was six years. Okay. Pretty insane. Most people don't have that kind of growth. Yeah. Like, no, it was uh, insane and it felt insane. Yeah. And it felt exciting and fun, but it it was just constant energy. And Mm -hmm. we were constantly like almost vibrating. We were just like so hyped up all the time. Yeah. And it wasn't sustainable. I mean, I remember Cameron used to complain about his health and worries that it was just too much. And I used to do the same. And it was just, we were going too fast for too long. And again, it was a great ride. Yeah. I think we did it based on adrenaline. We got, we got lucky with some big media hits. Now we worked hard for those, Mm -hmm. but it started to grow almost out of control. And it was just like, oh my gosh, what are we doing now? Like this is accidental entrepreneurship. And yeah, I mean, I wouldn't change a thing for the world, Yeah, but it was, it was fast. What do you think allowed you to go that fast and be that sort of seat of your seat of your pants? Like just go for it. Is it the fact that this was such a needed thing? You could make mistakes and have a little margin there, or was it just you guys were quick to respond, like, because that is, I mean, that growth, a lot of times can just devastate a company, especially one with no financing, you had no outside capital. So how, what do you think was the driver for that success? Yeah, our, our financial model of growth was franchising, which is getting outside capital in a different way. People go, here's the franchise fee. So we just sold 10 franchises. Now let's take that money and use it to build more infrastructure and systems. But we were always catching up. I I think what happened was, I think it was the press when we got some really big stuff. So my board at the time, I had a board in the early days and they said, don't get the press. You don't want to grow too quickly. And I said, oh, we can handle it. And so we went, got the press, phones lit up, franchise deals. It was, I think we barely got through it, but we managed. And I think that having Cameron and I be great friends and trust each other and- have complementary strengths, you know, some of our weaknesses overlapped quite a bit. And that was a challenge. Mm-hmm. But we, we just made it happen. And we were determined to make it happen. Nice. We had daily huddles, which we still have today, but we pulsed really quickly. Seven minute stand up daily huddles that just brought the whole team together to boom, 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 get through the goals towards the vision. We moved fast and we, we stuck with it. Awesome. And so now fast forwarding back here, you're, as you said, 5,000 people across the franchises. How many franchises between the three brands? Uh, 250. So there's about 150 with 1-800-GOT-JUNK and about 50 plus with each of the smaller brands. Awesome. Um, We had a period where we were up to 329 franchises with Uh 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And then what happened was some of the stronger ones bought out some of the weaker ones and it all sort of consolidated a bit. Consolidation Uh, within your own franchise. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And then the franchise, you know, the footprint stayed the same of what we serviced. It was just fewer people that we'd have to interact with and support. And it was a win-win. And is it just Canada and the US or is it broader than that? And Australia. And Australia. Cool. And so on that note, curious, what's next? 
you mentioned a fourth brand, maybe you mentioned some other stuff. Like, are you going to go, what, what do you think is coming down the pike for you? I don't know what's next. I honestly don't. I, I know that we will have a fourth and a fifth brand one day. They will likely be in home services, big, you know, again, grow where we're planted. Don't know what they'll be yet, but it's more of a, we got to get the two emerging brands to a hundred million dollar level, I think is kind of the critical mass there. And then we can start looking at, you know, what is the next brand? Because then what, what, what I love about our model too, is that we have an incubator of all these great people growing within the companies that when we go start brand four, there's likely someone that we can take or people we can take and put them into the fourth brand and the fifth brand and yeah. become a bit of a leadership development business. Which is awesome. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it sounds like you could go full circle with your first gig, your car washes. Great. Home. Yeah. I would have had someone come to my house today and wash my car. I'm like, yeah, I would. There's no, I don't know if I, we work with an app that does it, but like there's no real franchise for home car washes. Totally. I had a company come to my uh, home and do a mobile car wash. And I mean, it was great. It was easy. Yeah, exactly. Um, The price is pretty close, at least here. (laughs) Well, that's fun. And so last question for you. What's a piece of advice you'd give to someone just getting started on their journey that you either are glad you got, you glad you thought of, or wish you like something that's a little different. Everybody here is go work hard, etc. But like, what's something that you think, again, you either heard or didn't hear and wish you did. That's a little different. What piece of advice? Yeah, I give this and people have a hard time wrapping their head around it, but I I still believe it's worth saying is be willing to fail. Mm -hmm. It's okay to make mistakes and it's beyond okay. And and I think you would agree, Eric, knowing, you know, the business you've built, every great entrepreneur makes a ton of mistakes. And when they look back, if they didn't have those mistakes, they wouldn't become what they are, who they are today. So mistakes are an ingredient in success, a necessary ingredient. And so I think of, you know, I remember my middle daughter was learning to ski and came back from ski school in tears. I hate it. I hate it. I'm cold. I fall. And I'm like, you fall? She's like, yeah, I fall like every day. I hate it. I'm like, that's so good. Cause when you fall, you're learning how not to fall and how to get better. And you're growing and every Olympian who's skied has fallen. (laughs) And she came back and I guess it somehow resonated in the next lesson. She said, guess what? I fell. So you have to fail. You don't want to get hurt. Yeah. But you know, it's learning. What did you do wrong? When I fired my company of 11, I mean, that was a massive failure on me, mm-hmm. but we wouldn't have become a company that's built an amazing culture if we didn't have that mistake. Yeah. No, then that's hard to do. That's great that you focused on that. Well, Brian, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. Yeah. Awesome, Eric. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. And look forward to when we can connect in person again. Same here. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free, identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.